0: You're listening to The Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Altra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name's Harriet Smith. I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing the law to potentially ban junk food advertising online and before 9pm on television. We'll unpack the origins of this law and the evidence behind it. We'll also talk about the law's potential impact on public health as well as the food industry. To discuss this important topic, I'm really delighted to be joined by Registered Nutritionist and owner of the Nutrition Consultant, Charlotte Radcliffe. So without further ado, Charlotte, I'm going to hand over to you to tell us a bit more about yourself. Thank you,
1: Harriet. Hello to you and hello to everybody listening. Um, yes, I'm a Registered Nutritionist with the Association for Nutrition. I have about 20 years experience in the nutrition, health and food sectors I started as a personal trainer and uh, exercise instructor. I then moved into the food industry, specializing predominantly in food technology, food safety and audited food factories across Europe and then moved purely into the nutrition world. I think nutrition has always featured with all of my roles and um, to an extent. But as the years have gone on, the proportion of time dedicated to nutrition has increased. And I'll probably say for the last 10 to 12 years, um, nutrition has been my key focus area. I've had quite a few roles along along that time, Um, but I would say that the one I I held uh, as company nutritionist for McDonald's was the one that really has led me to do what I do today. And this was a huge role, um, particularly at the time, because it was at the start of the food industry getting pressure from government and other stakeholders Um, It was a company that got a lot lot of attention. And so I did a lot of media work, lots of meeting with MPs and different organisations. And it was all quite new back back then, you know, both for businesses to learn about public health, but also for government officials who didn't really know about the corporate sector. So I got involved in a lot and I, I led massive reformulation projects and led industry leading nutrition and health strategies for the past six years i've been running a consultancy business specializing in the provision of evidence-based nutrition services for the food industry i have a a small team who work with me and we essentially work with a wide variety of food brands both here in the uk and internationally um, including some of the world's most recognized uh, retailers restaurants and um, manufacturers along with delivery app providers in food innovation companies, PR companies, um, charities, and the media as well.
0: Brilliant. It sounds like you've got a fantastic background and very relevant to our discussion today, which is a big dietetic debate on the topic of will banning junk food advertising really help to tackle childhood obesity? So before we delve into this important topic, um, Charlotte, we tend to do our quick fire round of questions so that our listeners can get to know you on a bit more of a personal level. So my first question to you is, what is your favorite dish to cook?
1: I'm actually very, very lucky because my husband does most of our cooking, <laughs> and, and he's fantastic at it, and he loves doing it. Um, but I would say when I get the chance to be in the kitchen, when I'm not creating uh, food sort of development for some of my sort of, like for the work purposes, um, I would say I love making Thai dishes. I went to a, a cookery school in Thailand a few years ago, so I always feel like I'm a, a mini expert when it comes to Thai food. I'm probably not at all, but I like to to think I am at least. But I really enjoy those sort of Thai sort of flavours, particularly the spicy ones. So, favourite dishes would probably be something like a spicy uh, Thai curry or
0: um, a hot and sour soup. Mm, Sounds delicious. Um, Definitely making me hungry now. (laughs) Um, And next question, Charlotte, if you could get on a plane right now and fly to anywhere in the world, where would be your chosen destination? Oh,
1: they are so, so, so many places. I would absolutely love to go, as I'm sure a lot of us would uh, as well. But I I think I'd have to choose Dubai. And I took my family there a few weeks ago. We just had the best time. It was just great weather um just lots of laughter great food we stayed at a lovely hotel and it was just a holiday that was just built on just really happy family fun and so i'd, I'd definitely love to go back
0: brilliant and then finally we're obviously heading towards the christmas season so what's your favorite christmas film oh i i love christmas one the cheesier the better for me so um yeah
1: a- any kind of christmas film is is perfect but i I, I do really enjoy the kind of more family ones that like Nativity, which I find hilarious um, and Christmas Chronicles, but I, lo- I also love musicals. So any if, if it
0: has Christmas and music in it, then I'm there. <laughs> Perfect combination. Great. <laughs> Thanks, Charlotte. So we're now going to delve into our topics for discussion for today's episode. Um, just before we, we tackle our main topic, it would be great to hear a bit more about your job um, as a nutrition consultant in a bit more detail. I know you touched upon some of the types of work that you do earlier in your introduction, but can you talk us through perhaps what a typical day in the life of Charlotte Radcliffe looks like <laughs> with regards to your work? Well, there is no such thing as a typical day.
1: Every, literally, every day is so so different, um, and I love that. I love the variability of it. Um, but you know, ultimately, I'm, I'm working with food businesses to help them understand more about nutrition and health, so they can incorporate it into their operations. I think, like public health and nutrition, um, or sort of leg- the legality surrounding nutrition, um, can be really complex for non-experts. So I help break it down for them, assess their risks and opportunities, try and help and improve where there might be gaps. But project areas in general would be things like developing and enhancing strategies or policies, um, reformulation and menu planning, nutrition analysis, advising on the legalities of what businesses can say and what they can do. Lots of work on consumer insights and horizon scanning and media engagement um and also workshops and training sessions um, both in a sort of group setting but also uh one-to-one employee sessions as well but i, th- I think the, the variability also comes from yeah, every business is is different because some food and drink businesses already have an in-house nutrition team so the tasks that you know i help with that you know is really to support them um to a degree but um Many, many businesses don't have in-house nutrition support. So those uh, sort of tasks that I, and projects I get involved in are usually much broader. And it also depends on how far along their nutritional journey they are, because some businesses have been focusing on the area of nutrition and health for many, many years. So it's a case of just helping them along that journey as they continue to go Um but, but some businesses are literally at the start of their nutritional journey, so a lot of it is is almost getting their house in order. And you know, I mean, they're obviously all will all be legally compliant, but you know, just making sure that um, those they, getting those small wins across um, across the board, and then helping them in a bit more of a strategic manner.
0: Now, you mentioned earlier that some of the brands that you work with are the big name brands that most of us are probably familiar with. I imagine that this proposed law of banning junk food advertising will potentially have quite a big impact on them and their businesses. So just to give us a bit more context to perhaps our listeners who are not so familiar with this proposed law, could you tell us a bit more about it? When was this law first proposed? So the... the.
1: Area of advertising restrictions um, has has been in discussion for many 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 years. I think if we just start with the current restrictions, just to kind of break it down a little bit. Um, so this the, these new restrictions are in relation to restricting advertising of foods high in fats, foods and drinks high in fat, salt and sugar, um, in the UK on TV before nine pm, and also restricting online advertising for on paid channels, so where a company pays a third party to advertise products on their behalf. Um, the 9pm the restriction um, was first announced in the government's childhood obesity plan back in 2018, and then there was a consultation of that the following year, so 2019. 2020, government relaunched their obesity plan and um, within this, it then gave a further consultation on the ban of online advertising. So before the discussions were just on on TV Um, and then there was a consultation and then in 2021, the government confirmed that they would be proceeding with both sets of restrictions. So the 9pm watershed and the online um, restrictions as well. That was a surprise at the time, because prior to that, government had been rather reluctant to put much mandatory pressure on the food industry. So there's there's a few examples of uh, policies that have um, done that. But in general, they um, have really favoured a more voluntary route rather than a mandatory route. However, I'm, I'm sure you and many people will remember when Boris Johnson had COVID, his own personal experience in intensive care, it seemed to be the catalyst for getting a lot of interventions which had been discussed in the health communities um, and been campaigned for, for so many years. And um, it they they seemed to get through because of that. Um, so that was all announced. So you know a, a surprise, but it was announced and um, it was all going ahead, um, due to be implemented January 2023. However, a few months ago, government announced um, that they would be delaying um, key components of its obesity strategy, and advertising restrictions being one of them. So we're now seeing a delay of a year. So the plans are to uh, launch it in January 2024, and. Um, and that was also a surprise. The government had thrown all these surprises at us. Um, but this one had already been written into UK law. It had already got royal assent. It had it already features within the Health and Care Act 2022. So it was pretty much all systems go. So to, to get this block and this delay was quite a surprise for, for all parties concerned. Um, and I think time will tell whether it gets delayed further, whether it gets scrapped entirely, Um, but ultimately they will need to have time, dedicate time to redraft the law. They will then need to consult with interested parties. They would then need to um, consider those responses and then provide draft guidance. Um, each of those tasks alone are quite labour intensive, um, so not quick tasks. So, if it does go ahead, I'm I'm still a little bit
0: dubious as to whether January 2024 will be the date it does. That was a really comprehensive overview. Thank you very much for explaining that. I'm just wondering, what are the current restrictions in place at the moment? So, the restrictions
1: to date started in phases. So, in 20. Oh, no, in, uh, in t- 2007, that's how far back away it was, um, there were some restrictions which were based on scheduling restrictions. So these were really related to uh, food and drinks, high in fat, salt and sugar. I'm going to say HVSS because we're going to talk <laughs> talk about that. Um, so HVSS food and drinks um, between children's, c- certain children's programs. So basically where you've got a program that you have a high index of children watching, then this is where restrictions would take place. Um, so this, so for example, a cartoon or a children's channel that's specifically dedicated to children, such as Nickelodeon, for example. And there's also rules around licensed characters and celebrities. Um, so really looking at child uh, programs which children specifically watch. Um, And then about 10 years later, there were some further restrictions from CAP, which is the Committee of Advertising Practice, where they brought in further restrictions on non-broadcast media. So things like uh, advertisements in magazines or cinema. So where you've got a specific child film, then these restrictions would um, take place. And although these restrictions were really welcomed by health campaigners at the time, there's long been the view that they just don't go f- far enough and the main one of the main reasons why this is the case is because children don't just watch specific children's programs they also watch uh, family programs such as x factor or britain's got talent where the The number of adults also watching those programs dilute the index of the number of children watching them. So the restrictions in place don't cover for that time. And we know a lot of children will watch uh, TV, particularly between six and nine uh, p.m. periods after school and, and at weekends. And we've also changed the way that we watch programs. So Back in 2007, we weren't watching programs online like we do today and like children do. Um, so that was another sort of big gap. Um, and also online food and drink advertising between at, during that time has increased by about 450%. So it is like really significant. So it, there was a lot of calls for trying to future-proof the policy.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, obviously, things have changed so much over the last few years, which must, I imagine, be very difficult if you're working in food industry. Charlotte, can you talk us through the evidence base behind this new proposed law in a bit more detail? Well, I think without fully implementing a policy, it's actually quite difficult to
1: to get complete, robust uh, data um, so the data we have is is really informed evidence, and it's part of the government's impact assessment. Um, I would say it's all quite conservative estimates, um, but I, th- I would say overall, you know, we know that advertising works. Otherwise, advertisers wouldn't spend the significant amount of um, investment that that they do, and it's not just food. You know, advertising is you know part of our. Everyday lives. Um, so reducing exposure will undoubtedly make some impact. Um, w- in general, um, but about half of food adverts are for HVSS. Food and drinks, but that increases to around two thirds between that six till nine period that I mentioned earlier, which a lot of children are um, tuning into. So, so yes, it it, it will be uh, limiting exposure, in, undoubtedly. Um, but is with with any kind of health policy, it's really difficult when it's associated with. Uh, a reduction in obesity because it's just one policy. and Obviously, obesity is a highly complex subject involving so many different elements. Um, I think if we, if we look further afield at what other countries are doing, there, there's plenty of other countries that have advertising restrictions in place, um, largely based on what the UK do, so uh, restrictions which are um, associated with children's programmes. But I would say that Chile in South America is one that is widely regarded as going further and faster than any other sort of part of the world. Um, so in 2016, they implemented their food, uh, food labeling and advertising law, which put re- restrictions on advertising. Also put um, sort of black warning labels on prepackaged food um based on nutrient thresholds which have, have got stricter and stricter and stricter as the years have gone by. And the their strategy was further enhanced in 2018 where they launched um a TV restriction with a 10 pm threshold. And within a year they they've they've shown that their analysis that exposure has reduced by 58%. Um, so, so definitely there is impact there, but even with like really strict laws, like we see in Chile, it's, um, it's very difficult to have a blanket ban on advertising in general. Chile found that there was still um, a lot of HFSS advertising taking place through channels that weren't under, um, weren't governed by the law of Chile. Um, And we've seen that in the UK restrictions, where it's only impacting channels or programmes or advertisers which come under the UK jurisdiction. So there there are a few loopholes with regards to that. And, you know, we've we've put this in place um, and this is the results because there's so many interweaving factors. And also, I think a lot of people are influenced by what they see at that time so if they see an advert for a food or drink it may want them to or they may want that food and drink um at that particular time but what we don't know and what the evidence is really lacking is how advertising restrictions could help change food preferences over a longer period of time we know children are Particularly vulnerable when it comes to advertising, or more susceptible to it and its effects. And um, but it's really that that longer term uh, food and uh, desire and preferences that really we, we you know we know are, are shaped at a
0: young age as to what the impacts may be for that. And talking of the longer term impacts of this proposed law, if we look at the statistics from the National Child Measurement Programme using their 2021 to twenty two data, it does show that obesity rates fell. However, there's still around 20% of year six children who are classified as being obese. So do you think this law is going to be an effective strategy to, to reduce childhood obesity?
1: I think, I think it's an
0: important
1: policy. Um, and it will, it will help to an extent. However, it's it's the multi-pronged approach which really is needed. One policy area isn't going to make a long-term sustainable difference. It's one piece of
0: the jigsaw. Uh, it really does need the support of other me- mechanisms as well. And you you alluded to this earlier, but do you think companies are just going to find ways to get around this law? Are there loopholes to it, do you think?
1: I think there are loopholes to every piece of legislation. But I, th- I think with this one, it's more about the limitations of the law. Um, and advertisers still do have a lot of options to advertise. So brand advertising can still take place. If, you know, for example, a logo that's not featuring, you know, foods, but, you know, well-established food brands, you know, the, the, their logos or their name or their slogan, you know, it can be instantly recognizable. Um, but that, that certainly allows, it's, it's not a loophole. It's, you know, it's a, something that's just a limitation. And there's reasons why that that is allowed. Um, obviously, advertisers can use their own social media channels so the restrictions in place are really for when they pay third parties to advertise their products for them, but it doesn't um, take into account their own social media channels. And again, that would be very, very difficult to, to have um, a law in place to to do that. But obviously a lot of these social media channels, are, you know, they have large followings, huge um, engagement and lots of user generated content as well. And I think kids, you know, really are influenced by other kids to yeah, a, a big, big degree. And um, so we know that, you know, brands can, you know, love setting challenges. I think there was one, a Doritos one that sticks to mind where they were encouraging users to, have a a bag of Doritos roulette and then recording their reactions to see what they got and then posting that online. And obviously, everyone thought it was very humorous. And and, but that's just, you know, one example of how you you can kind of use everyday people to, to do the advertising for you. I think we also mentioned about, you know, channels being be within the, the UK juris, jurisdiction, you know, that this law can only um, affect part of, of what we see. And I think also direction probably will be diversified. So um, advertisers can still still use uh, radio advertising or cinema advertising, sports sponsorship, advertising in outdoor areas. So there's there's lots of ways that companies can still advertise. So this is this is almost like another stepping stone. So I mentioned before about some of the restrictions already in place. This is almost like the next phase, but there probably would need to be you know more phases to come to cover a lot of these limitations that I've just mentioned. But I think importantly this has never been about stopping companies advertise. It's just trying to influence companies to advertise in a slightly different way. So there's just a bit more balance to what our children see. And I would also hope that advertisers use their marketing power for the force of good. I try and influence um, some of the brands that I work with to, to use their marketing power you know, in a different way um, and, and lots have done and have seen really great results. I work with VegPower as well and, you know, they're through their Eat Them to Defeat Them campaign. They've really demonstrated that um, at, by advertising vegetables, there is a direct link to increasing consumption of them. So, you know, we know advertising works, but it's just that imbalance um, of getting um, just a bit more uh, broader um. And what what we see on on TV and what what our our children see. And and I think also brands, you know, either have non-HFSS products um, or could create them. And so there's lots of ways that advertisers could still, you know, be
0: um, a big advertiser, but it's just changing the way that they do that. Mm, so actually, there's lots of opportunities for brands as well, um, which is is really encouraging. You mentioned earlier that this law was originally planned to come into force in January 2023, but it's now expected to be implemented in 2024. What Have the government given a reason for this delay? Yeah, well, I mean, the official
1: line is that government are wanting to do an internal summary of the obesity policy um, that the... Obviously, we are in a you know a global economic crisis. Um, obviously, the cost of living has gone up. So, the official line is that they really want to ensure that there are no unintended consequences of launching um, this policy and others that were with, within the, the obesity strategy or just to have a better understanding of impact to consumers and to businesses. Um, But, but also even, even though the advertising restrictions were were already passed in law, the industry was still waiting for guidance um, on how to implement it. You know, the real specifics of what was expecting um, and that all takes time. So I think it, there was a recognition that industry need more time to prepare and I would probably say unofficially, you know, we know through all the, the different changes with our government. I mean, we're on, you know, we've had so many MP, uh, prime ministers. And um, we know when, when this delay was um, announced, there was a lot of pressure on Boris Johnson. And um, a lot of backbenchers were given votes of no confidence. Um, and we know backbenchers have a lot of influence on the cabinet. So I think that was another reason why it was just put on hold um, in order to almost stabilise the government, uh, factor in what was happening externally and in, in the global environment. But, but now we're in a situation where the probability is that we've got a general election or we'll have a general election in two years' time. Um, so the parliamentary practicalities of that um, – I probably feel there's a, there's a bit of nervousness both inside government but also, um, health campaigners and 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 also industry because there's there's a lot that's just up in the air and um and we don't know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what are your thoughts on the impact that this delay could have on food industry and childhood obesity?
1: Yeah, I think I think particularly for children. I think you know the proportion of children. Um, with overweight or obesity, um, it increases sharply as they go through primary school. So, although we're talking about a year delay, possibly um, a year in a child's life is so much more than than what we think it is, because there's so many changes that happen in a child's life. So, so a year is a really long time um, to to postpone it for. Um, I think yeah. food, food marketing is everywhere, so it's. Um, I think any any delay is is gonna is gonna have a, a definite in, impact.
0: Now, just going back to what you said about there being lots of changes to prime ministers and government recently, there was a lot of talk during Liz Truss's time as prime minister about them reviewing their anti-obesity strategy. Is that review still ongoing? I think you mentioned this earlier, um, and. If the law was to be scrapped, do you think there would be advantages to that? Um, we, we're certainly led to believe it is ongoing. You know, that is the, that is the official
1: line. How, however, I mean, the reality of the state of government, you know, we're in a really fragile, they're in a really fragile position. Um, and I think the lack of public confidence in them, uh, the general cost of living is you know huge factors that I, I, I think, this would be, you know, has, has been pushed down their priority list to an extent. Um, MPs, you know, want and need to keep their seats, and so they really want uh, policies that are going to be favoured by consumers and industry. Um, I think it would certainly be a shame, uh, a real shame, if the strategy was scrapped. I think it's it's got the potential to be world leading. Um, so I think it, it, it would it would be um, a real backward step. I think the amount of money that's been invested and time that's been invested, both both from government, which obviously taxpayers pay for that, and also, um, likewise from from industry, um, which potentially that cost you know goes to consumers in the end. Um, and I, I think yeah, it probably is you know advantageous to to some. Uh, Organisations, I think, for the advertising sector as a whole, I think there's there's always been concerns about the constraints to the law, um, and also little flexibility to to change it in in coming years if it wasn't uh, making the impact that um, it's due to. But also the the revenue. There's been lots of talk about the revenue for the the advertising sector, and you know that funds journalists. So I think that would um, you know probably be adv- advantageous. But I think you know, like, like I said before, you know this this is not about um, stopping advertising. So I think you know a lot of food bus- food and drink businesses, you know do um, agree in part to um, policies in in general and, and want to do their bit um, for public health.
0: Now, there might be some people listening who are um, perhaps concerned about this review of the strategy and what those outcomes might be. So are there any ways for people to get involved and make their voices heard at this stage? Um, I I think I would would always suggest linking up with
1: public health charities um, who, you know, always value the the, uh, supports that the health community can, can bring for it to be implemented eventually. It does need to stay in the headlines. Um, so organizations with the big voices that, you know, are really opposing the delay, you know, would be good to link up with them, such as Bite Back. 2030, such as the Food Foundation, Action on Sugar, for example. And also, you know, there's there's various petitions so you can sign um, if you agree with what they're uh, proposing um, and also consultations. So, you know, the, on on the back of these delays, you know, there, there will be further consultations that, you know, us as health professionals um, should certainly
0: be responding to. Thank you and we can certainly link to some of those um, in the show notes. Now we've talked a lot about the advantages to this um, legislation, but are there any disadvantages that come to mind? Um, For example, would it encompass foods which we might as nutritionists and dietitians actually consider to be healthy, but they might fall under this piece of legislation? Can you talk us through that in a bit more detail? Yeah, I wouldn't say um, necessarily
1: ones that perceive to be healthy, and uh, maybe apart from plant-based products, which have um, a health halo to, to an extent, um, but you know sometimes contain more salt and saturated fat than the meat equivalents. Um, but I think you know it's important to um, consider that the restrictions are only covering certain food. And drinks, and I've I've not mentioned that yet, but um, you know, it's categories which are specifically associated with kids' diets. Um, so there's a lot of products that um have almost made the headlines of, or we wouldn't be able to advertise them, such as hummus or avocados, um, olive oil, um, things like that. That, but actually, you know, that because they're not in the list of categories that are affected by this piece of legislation, um, then, you know, that, that that's fine. Um, so it's only if a product is in those categories that it's then subject to a nutrient profile. So it's the nutrient profile model, um, which actually I, I, I really like the approach because it's quite balanced. And for, for those who are not familiar with it, it's in two parts. So the first part is really looking at energy and nutrients of concern, of um, a product per hundred grams, so calories, salt, sugar, saturated fat, and then the second part is looking at the protein and the fibre content and the proportion of fruit and veg, if it indeed includes it. Um, so it's so it's it's a nice model in general. I think it probably could be um, updated because it's been around a while now. I think it was published in twenty. 20- 2004, 2005. So yeah, it's been been around um, a long time. Um, I think one one of the things I don't like about it is the fact it disincentivizes reformulation. So I think uh, there's like a, sometimes a general consensus that it's quite easy to make a product from HFSS to non-HSS, um, but actually by by doing that for for a lot of products. Would actually change them dramatically you know so much that the product is probably unrecognizable to the customer and they possibly would then just choose an alternative product so it almost doesn't get us anywhere so i think health by stealth approach generally is a much more powerful approach when it comes to reformulation and helping businesses to make small changes over a long period of time But, you know, it's customers still want to buy what they want to buy. And so it's we're just not wanting them to necessarily
0: change um, for a different one that hasn't been reformulated. Yeah. So it's about keeping the customers loyal, um, but also improving the nutrient profile of the product to some extent. Yeah, and taking it with us. Now the government have estimated that implementing a watershed coupled with the online advertising ban could lead to children in the UK consuming 7.2 billion fewer calories over the course of a year. What would this impact actually look like in terms of obesity reduction rates?
1: Yeah, the, the, the famous 7.2 billion calories is, um, I'm sure you remember at the time, it was like all over the headlines. Um uh, but really for the wrong reasons and you know if I think there's there's reported to be over 14 million children under 18 in the UK. So that's 7.2 billion. I mean it sounds sounds a lot but when we break it down by you know the population um, that are under 18, it it breaks down to just over a calorie per day per child, which clearly isn't a lot and a lot of the media headlines really focused on that and um, equated it or compared it to, oh, that's the equivalent of half a smartie. so really what's, what is the impact and, and that. But that, that figure is, is a population wide figure and calculating a calorie lost figure per child doesn't reflect the difference in socioeconomic status so the policy could have a greater impact on some children um, versus others. So, you know, for example, we know through evidence that children from lower socioeconomic uh, households are more likely to spend more time watching TV and being online than households um, with higher incomes. So this indicates that, that children um, would be. Uh, more likely to be affected by any restrictions. Um, so it, it's a difficult one to, you know, to pinpoint a, a population-wide stat um, when the impact across that population um, can be quite um, different. And I think also the, as you know, with any kind of social media and online, the algorithms tailor content that we see. So that's so the more we see, the more we're likely to see. Um, so, so that you know can be an issue as well. But I think if we if we look at stats from the Transport for London network, so Transport for London initiated uh, restrictions on advertising across the London transport network for foods high in fat, salt, and sugar. Again, using that same nutrient profiling model that I I touched on a little while ago, and they the School of um, The School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine uh, recently published uh, the results of a study where they found that um, households in London were buying a 1,000 fewer calories in their weekly shop and a reduction in sugar purchases per week of up to 81% from products such as chocolate and sweets. So that study is you know evolving and you know you know, time will tell whether that those that trend continues but it does seem to be that you know when we're looking at evidence that that scheme that's been in place for a couple of years is making an impact and actually there's a lot of local authorities who are now wanting to adopt a similar process so I think there's about 70 local authorities across the UK um, that, that have this on the table to to launch.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So, in terms of that headline of 7.2 billion calories, you've got to delve a bit deeper into mm-hmm. it. There's more to it than that. Yeah. Um, looking more generally, do you think the government are tackling childhood obesity in the right way? I think there are definitely some key areas
1: um, included in the government strategies, which are the right ones. Um, obviously, some are on hold, uh, as we've spoken about. Um, but they, yeah, these, these include um, areas as well, such as buy one, get one free offers, the ban of restaurants offering free refills of sugary drinks. So some are on hold, um, obviously things like calorie labeling in restaurants and um, the placement of food and drinks um, restricted to being non-HVSS only in England. Um, have have or have already you know been put in place but there's a lot of other areas on the table for, of discussion I think timings are very much up in the air because of the flux of government um, but things like mandatory front of pack nutrition labeling for pre-packed foods uh, policies on baby food I think uh, calorie uh, Labelling on alcohol is, is another one. And and also the continuation of work with businesses and industry through reformulation programmes to reduce sugar, salt um, and saturated fat and possibly mandatory reporting as well. So I, th- I think yeah, the, these are all really, really important areas. And if each of them were launched, then you know I think we'd be in a really positive uh, situation. But I think we've there have been so many government-led strategies and associated policies that just haven't gone anywhere there was a recent study um from cambridge university which said there'd been 14 strategies and 693 policies um but a lot of them are, are cyclists so, so it's they get proposed, but but then nothing happens about them. So this this latest strategy, the one that we you know we're talking about that's been put on hold, um, was probably the most restrictive of policies, and it's that restriction that has really brought upon you know quite a lot of
0: nervousness. And the million-dollar question, I guess, Charlotte, is if you were the current prime minister, would you go ahead with implementing this proposed law yourself?
1: Um, I, I would personally, um, and I think you know, there's there's a lot of things that I would do if I was in charge, which unfortunately I'm not. But if I was, um, I, I I think one of the the key downfalls of why we've got and had so many policies that just haven't gone further is because there doesn't seem to be a real cross functional team. So I think if I was in charge, I would and have a specific cross-functional team looking at this. I think a lot of delays um, and indecisive actions have been because of silos within government teams. I think more communication is needed, more cross-functional working um, in order to have a coherent strategy rather than picking a few policies and, and running with them. Um, And I think, ironically, looking at the key drivers of marketing, which are price, promotion, placement and packaging, I think they're four key areas, which are really inclusive of a lot of the topics that, you know, need um, action. But I think also, you know, obviously, the, the food industry and advertising are all really important areas. But, you know, we need to bring in education to this, we need to bring in schools. And so it's, I think we, we we just need that to have that broader lens, um, but also to learn from policies that may have been implemented that f- was were deemed to be a failure. There doesn't seem to be any evaluation or much evaluation um, with a lot of the of this process. You know, governments rarely commission um, evaluation of previous government strategies. So, and and a lot of focused on sort of more uh, individuals making behavior changes rather than shaping external influences. So we we just see almost like the same things time and time again. I think if it it wasn't for COVID, a lot of these things that we're talking about now wouldn't have been pushed through in the first place, you know, particularly in in such a short timeframe. And unfortunately, I think, when we see government proposing policies, sometimes it serves a more political process um, of being seen to be doing something rather than caring whether it goes forward or not. So I think again, if I was you know part of this a leadership team and leadership is you know really what is needed, um it, it needs to have meaningful commitment um rather than chop and change. Um, but you know, it is very difficult just the way government is set up
0: and um, that you know this that's why we we talk about the same issues um, time and time again yeah i guess it's a case of watch this space over the next year um and in terms of our listeners dietitians and nutritionists who are wanting to play a role themselves in helping to tackle childhood obesity what would be your top piece of advice to them well, I think certainly, um, you know, working with campaigning
1: groups, like we mentioned, um, Bite Back, for, you know, for example. But I think also working with schools to, to help improve school meals, um, working with the food industry to help them with healthier options or reformulation, probably getting behind campaigns, um, such as those led by Jamie Oliver and, and others, um, and also, you know, providing support through your own social media channels, perhaps, uh, share, uh, signing petitions, I think, Um and also, you know, responding to government consultations, you know, I mentioned that before, but I think a lot of health professionals always shy away from um, responding to them. But actually, you know, we, we all should have a voice. And if it's something that you really believe in, then, you know, you you should respond. And you don't have to respond to every single question. It might be just one part of it that, you know, you're particularly passionate about. So, you know, focus your energies on that or get together with others, you know, in a, in a small um, party, committee of you to, to, to respond um, as a group. And, and I would all, always um, promote trying to learn as much as possible about public health policies as possible, no matter what sector of the nutrition or dietetics world that you're in. I think you know we all need to you know have have a good knowledge on public health and um, the limitations and um, the potential impact that that they can have.
0: Well, Charlotte, thank you so much for your time today. That's been a really insightful discussion and I'm sure our listeners will have found that very, very interesting. Um, So thank you for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure having you with us. Thank you for having me. A huge thank you to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoy listening to The Dietitian Cafe, please consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more healthcare professionals you can follow New Ultra on social media at New Ultra, across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out soon.